0: Thank you all for joining us again today. For those of you who are new to the podcast series, my name is Kaylin Landry, and I am a senior manager in Barry Dunn's Financial Service Industry Group, specializing in financial institution audits, as well as internal control audits, commonly known as a Fedisha integrated audit. I am joined today by Ian Martell.
1: Thanks, Kaelin. Happy to be back for episode two today. Um, yeah, I mean, similar to Kaylin, I've had a lot of really great experience working with our different uh, financial institutions, clients, and really started to dig in deeper uh, into the internal control and and, uh, ICFR audit side of the house. So really happy to uh, be part of the series as we start to get into some more of the details.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Um, So just to recap briefly, in our first episode, we discussed the general overview of what internal controls over financial reporting is and when an audit is required. What we're going to touch upon in this episode is how to prepare for an audit of internal controls over financial reporting and some commonalities of audit evidence that we should be looking at during the process.
1: All right. Yeah, you said it. I mean, you know, so our first session, we really kind of laid a groundwork and took the high level view. Um, But as we start to get into more of the details and and maybe move towards what the steps are for preparation for an audit, would you mind giving us kind of an overview in your experience, Kaylin, of maybe the steps you would expect an institution to have gone through prior to an audit of their internal control over financial reporting?
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start and to recap from our first episode. So during that episode, we really honed in on the fact that The area to start with is looking at a risk assessment as well as a fraud risk identification to see which significant areas as part of your financial statements you should be honing in on for key control consideration. So when you're looking at this, we really recommend that management start at least a year before you think that you're going to have to become compliant under a FDESHA integrated audit regulations, that you wanna take the time to match the components of your internal controls that you already have in place with the COSO principles, so therefore you can identify any gaps in coverage. Typically, we can usually call this the vetting process. So what you want to make sure is that you are thoroughly documenting all your controls. During this process, you'll also look at areas that are considered high risk and low risk and determine if you have addressed an internal or an external fraud risk within those controls and also which key assertions they cover, such as existence, valuation, or completeness. You wanna get the buy-in of your management, especially of the departments that are going to be involved with these key controls, because they're going to be required to sign off on the key controls that are put in place for their specific departments.
1: All right, so it sounds like there's a few different avenues management could take, and you know, a handful of key stakeholders they want to bring kind of into the fold. Um, do you have anything for maybe a best practice recommendation or, or I guess recommendations um, that management might consider when they start the process?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you're getting into this process, we highly recommend setting up meetings and involving both your external auditors and your internal auditors directly from the start. They will really help you decipher what you have in place in the key controls at hand to make sure everything is covered and they can also add in some recommendations at this time it's also important to discuss the testing plan that you're going to look at for testing these specific key controls including the frequency of them you also want to make sure that you've documented your internal controls typically we see this within an internal control over financial reporting matrix That will cover a lot of your process controls and when you look at the entity level controls that hits upon the um, you know specific coso principles that may be documented in a memo but either way just make sure that they are documented and that the documentation is concise and accurate you also want to make sure that you are maintaining all of your testing work papers and any supporting documentation during this process in one specific place, so therefore you're able to provide it to your external auditors when they audit for an integrated audit.
1: All right, so those sound like a couple of pretty helpful uh, starting points anyway as as uh, a team starts the process um, and you know that gives us the basic understanding of what's going on. So you mentioned process level and you also mentioned entity level control environment. Um, let's start with, I guess, entity level. Would you be able to walk us through some examples of maybe what audit evidence uh, for the entity level portion would look like
0: yeah looking at the entity level controls this is where we really hone back in on the elements of the COSO principle so we'll first touch upon the control environment within the control environment this is where you're looking at tone at the top at the institution as well as policies and procedures so to gain audit evidence for these specific areas, the first thing we'll look for is documentation of the policies in place at your institution. Some examples are your corporate governance policy or an ethics policy that's currently in place, and also how that policy is acknowledged by both your employees and your board of directors. You can also have guidance within your employee handbook as well as potentially a whistleblower policy, and also looking at your significant financial statement areas for policies such as loans, deposits, investments, or the allowance, or accounting. A couple other examples are your audit committee and board meetings. So if you have sample packages of these, these are really good evidence in regards to the agenda items that are discussed at each of those meetings, really helping to, Provide guidance on the tone at the top and indicate that that is, it is occurring on a frequent basis. Another area is if the board or the audit committee performs a self assessment, indicating that they have a chart of responsibilities that they're supposed to adhere to on a frequent basis, going through that and making sure that they are following up and actually adhering to their specific responsibilities. The last item under this area is making sure that the institution has competent personnel that is hired and ma- maintained. and some examples to support this would be a completed organizational chart in place job descriptions that employees are able to go back to and adhere to as well as a performance evaluation, what that looks like and how frequently that is um, that occurs with the employees. The next area is looking at the risk assessment element of COSO, so within this you're looking at what management choices are, what tolerance for risk the institution is willing to take, also the internal and external factors that come into play, especially as it's related to fraud risk. Some examples of auditable evidence within this would be looking at if the institution has an enterprise risk management program or policy in place a business continuity plan or a succession plan. And for the IT side of the institution, if there's a cybersecurity risk assessment, and again, a documented fraud risk assessment.
1: All right, so, and I'm sure this may sound like a broken record by the end of the series, but a lot of this just seems like it's stuff that's already going on and that, you know, management should just be taking credit for. Um, You know, I I couldn't imagine an institution not wanting to hire the most competent people and, you know, keeping those folks on board and, you know, maintaining policies for your employees or a handbook, all stuff that seems to go on kind of behind the scenes every day. Um, So I'm glad you brought all that up. It seems like a good way for management maybe to get a head start on this process and just maybe, you know take time to become aware of the the things you're already accomplishing. Um, So how do we kind of go on from there?
0: Excellent. Thanks, Dan. That's a great summary of it. And to really hit home that document. Just document, document, document what you already have in place. Um, So from there, we're going to look at information and communication. So again, something that occurs regularly at your institutions, both internally and externally. And a lot of the supporting evidence can come from the control environment process, which we just briefly touched upon, as well as the monitoring activities, which we will touch upon here in a moment. But some specific auditable evidence under this area would be considered looking at your Regulation O items. So is there an audit that's completed on an annual basis? Is there a related party listing in place? and looking at your insider loan policy and making sure that it's discussed appropriately with employees and board members. Also looking to see if the institution has an audit committee charter in place, a board governance policy in place, and lastly would be an account certification program. So this really follows up on your financial reporting and your general ledger accounts that are required to be reconciled on a consistent basis. And really this program would Document that and have a policy in place as to what personnel should be adhering to to make sure they are compliant with that. The last area we will touch upon is monitoring activities so bank management is responsible for monitoring the key identified controls in the matrix. One way to do this is making sure that there is a control exception tracker in place. So once you've established in test controls, it's really important to track any exceptions and deviations that have occurred throughout the frequent testing. You also wanna make sure that you've established a process to track and address those exceptions performed by all parties. So those that are identified by management testing, internal auditors, as well as external auditors. And you wanna make sure that you are presenting this to the audit committee or the board on at least a quarterly basis.
1: All right, awesome. That's a pretty good overview. And it seems to me like, you know, entity level controls are really just covering kind of the high level operation of the institution, the stuff that goes on, you know, behind the scenes that customers certainly wouldn't really be aware of, but at the same time would probably expect to be in place. And while they're not specific to any individual areas, you know, maybe your finance or lending departments, Uh, they're definitely critical to sound operation of any institution. And, you know, again, these things are already most often in place at your institution and really should just be documented. And and at that point, you can just provide them as evidence. So now that we've got a handle on what uh, the entity level side of things looks like as far as, you know, maybe audit evidence and, and the specifics there, Would you walk us through the other side? So the process level controls and what what management might expect to uh, be providing on that end?
0: Yeah, that's a great next area to jump into as this also addresses the control activities element of the COSO framework. So first we'll jump into financial reporting. So financial reporting is typically sometimes an area where there are controls in place, but they may be missed in the actual accumulation of internal controls over financial reporting within a matrix. So when looking at this, some examples of controls that we typically like to see in the matrix is documentation of review of any new accounting or auditing standards. This may be in a memo form indicating that management has reviewed the new standard. They understand the implications that it may have on their financial reporting, and then the results once they've actually implemented these new standards, if applicable for their institution. Another area is making sure there's documented controls over analyzing financial results and reports, such as your monthly reporting packages that go to the board of directors. Also looking at controls over your chart of accounts. So how do they create accounts, modify accounts, delete them, and then as well as the reconciliation procedures of those specific accounts. Also looking at controls over the call report, and the Y-9 report if applicable with a holding company, and your review of manual transactions and non-post items. Additionally, you want to make sure you have documented controls over your tax position and your deferred tax calculation. Please tune in to our next episode, which directly involves the specific controls over these areas and what to have documented for them. Also documentation that management has reviewed significant estimates as well as the use of third-party assumptions for investment fair value or your pension or post-retirement obligation. And lastly, a review of annual financial statements, including completion of the disclosure checklist.
1: So now that we've gotten kind of the high-level financial reporting kind of out, out there on the table, um, what about maybe the significant audit areas? Um, you know, maybe stuff that you know, for any institution your auditors have been looking at probably for years now, um, well before, you know, Fidesha even kind of appeared on the horizon for you. What do you typically see for those areas, Kaelin?
0: Yeah, so looking at your financial statements and after you've performed your risk assessment, typically the areas we see as the most significant and higher risk are investments, loans, which also includes the allowance for loan loss and deposits. So the first area i'll hone in with some examples of key controls is investments so walking through investments the first thing we usually look for is making sure that there is approval of purchases and sales and controls around that process additionally as previously discussed is that if there's a policy in place making sure that it's approved within the terms of the policy Also, that there's a monthly general letter reconciliation and safekeeping reconciliation that is prepared and reviewed and that's documented. For yields, making sure that they are calculated and reviewed and management investigates any potential exceptions that occur on a month to month basis, and that's documented. Also looking at other than temporary impairment, how that's monitored and documented by management. And then market values, making sure that market values are verified to an independent outside source. The next two areas we'll cover together are loans and deposits, as they are really document, they're documented and tested separately, but the basis behind them are very similar. So therefore easy to cover together within this series. So first we'll look at new deposit or new loan setup. Here you wanna make sure that there has been a second party verification that the setup on the system is checked to a daily report and documented. Secondly, you're looking at loan and deposit file maintenance. Again, making sure there's been a second party verification of the completeness and accuracy of any maintenance changes and that the person performing that review is independent from the one who actually made the original changes. Looking into the rate changes for both deposits and loans you're looking at the actual transaction level as well as the master rate change and making sure that there's evidence that a selected rate change was properly reviewed and approved for accuracy of inputs and proper segregation of duties within that process. The other item is reconciliation process, making sure there's been a second party verification of general ledger accounts that have been reconciled to their subledgers. And lastly, looking at loan yields, as well as deposit cost of funds, similar with investments, making sure that they are calculated appropriately, and fluctuations are reviewed on a consistent basis with a specific scope set by management to look into any potential variances that have occurred and making sure that the responses to those are documented. When we look at just loans alone, there are a few controls specific to loans which we'll discuss next. The first being loan documentation. Typically, we like to see that there is a checklist in place to verify all documents necessary are included, and there's been a secondary review of that process. We have seen a lot of institutions, especially on the residential side, moving towards a software resolution for this where the loan cannot move through the process until all specific documents have been received and so therefore they don't have a checklist in place they're really relying on this system which is an okay control to utilize what we would then ask is that there's a specific documented review of the SOC one report and that is a key control within your matrix last item for loans is the policy if there's a loan policy in place make sure that it's reviewed and approved on a consistent basis Looking at deposits, there's two specific areas here that wouldn't be covered the same as loans. The first one being review of dormant accounts, making sure there's a specific key control over this. Sometimes we may see this included within deposit file maintenance or its own separate control depending on the institution. The last item would be review of employee accounts, making sure that there's some type of consistent review of employee accounts and what that entails and making sure that it's documented.
1: Awesome, it's so great to have you and all the experience you can offer here speak to those areas. Um, There's a lot to them. I know for me, one one item that kind of had my ears uh, perked up was when you mentioned the allowance, Um, just knowing kind of the complexity and uh, kind of the, the time that can go into preparing an allowance calculation. Um, Should management expect to see, you know, maybe a similar level of effort on the fiducius side as it pertains to the allowance?
0: Yeah, the allowance, as you mentioned, is a very significant area. And that's where we should hone in to make sure controls are documented appropriately. The first area that we look for is the overall calculation of the allowance for loan loss, making sure that it is supported by the methodology laid out by management and that it's also in compliance with the institution's policy, and the inputs are reviewed and compared to the qualitative memo in place. And if it's presented to the board for review and approval, making sure that has been documented within minutes. You also want to look at any potential controls to add when you're implementing CECL, especially if you're utilizing a system or a vendor software. And one thing to consider is for that first year that you're Moving towards the software is making sure that you've documented the validation of the data that has been uploaded into the software. So therefore, you know that the outputs are complete and accurate. Another area that affects the allowance is your past due loans and your delinquency reports, looking at the controls surrounding those and making sure that they are documented and tested on a frequent basis. Also looking at your non accrual status and the controls surrounding that and what the institution's policy is. Additionally, controls over your troubled debt restructurings and how those are coded and included within your allowance calculation. And the last item is looking at your risk rating reviews. Have you hired a third party vendor that looks at your risk ratings on an annual basis? And also what your in-house policy is for reviewing loans. The last area that we'll touch upon from a process level controls is really the IT controls. Typically we see these documented in a separate matrix just because of the specialization that occurs with them and that there's typically a different internal auditor that will look at these. Please tune into our episode four where specific controls related to IT and internal control over financial reporting is discussed.
1: So for some of those areas, um, one thing that stands out to me is just the volume of transactions that can run through, you know, whether it be a lending department or deposit operations. Um, You know, even in a given day, there could be hundreds, if not more, um, uh, maybe instances of these controls being in operation. Um, What guidance maybe would you give uh, management on maybe the number of transactions they should test or a sample size uh, in order to you know say they've gained an understanding or maybe comfort over the operating effectiveness of these controls.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Ian. so looking at sample sizes, it really depends on a number of factors. So you want to look at the frequency of the control as well as the assessed risk associated with a specific control area. You want to make sure that appropriate sample size will minimize the risk of any sampling error and the risk of providing an inaccurate assessment. And so utilizing some examples of sample um, information, if you're looking at a large sample size, so typically one over 200 in transactions, which would be a daily function, if you expect zero deviations to occur, usually we're looking at a sample of 40. And then as you move up and you have one potential deviation, we would increase the sample to 60. And two, you would increase your sample to 90. If you're looking at less frequent controls, such as quarterly, monthly, semi-monthly, or weekly, there definitely is some guidance out there as to how many samples you should be looking at. And one recommendation is really just to make sure you're maintaining consistent sample sizes across all controls.
1: Awesome. So there is some backbone, or you know, uh, some consistent um, kind of guidelines out there that management can turn to. That that's, I think, always helpful. You know, reduce ambiguity where you can. And so you mentioned, you know, expanding sample sizes if you note exceptions. Um, kind of, can you, can we go into that a little deeper as to maybe how management knows, maybe what. Uh, would warrant expansion versus maybe, you know, could you ever say that, you know, we've got an exception here, but it's, you know, it's isolated or it's just a one-off thing. Um, What what should management look for to that end?
0: Yeah, that's a great area. So, looking at Exceptions and when they're found within testing, your response is really gonna depend on the area in consideration. You know, is this a high risk area or a low risk area? And also the population that's being considered. So for example, if you're looking at a high risk area, such as loans, deposits, or investments, and there's a large population, such as a daily control, a lot of times if you find an exception, we would recommend additional testing be completed based on the number of deviations found. So it should be just one over if you find one or two exceptions increasing your sample size. This will really allow you to determine if the exception is an isolated incident or if it becomes a systemic issue within that control area. If you increase your testing and you determine that it's not an isolated incident and a resolution should be discussed with management, Two types of issues may be at hand. The first being a documentation issue, indicating that the control is placed, but it's just not being documented appropriately by those involved with the control. Second is looking at it as if it's a control issue. So the control is not actually in place and not operating as designed and documented in the matrix. So therefore, we recommend management revisit this control and discuss a remediation process. The control may need to be redesigned and put back in place, and training occurs with those involved to really reiterate the importance of the controls being in place and that it needs to be followed. If this is something that is identified during interim testing, you can complete follow-up testing for the remainder of the year to verify that the control's in place and operating effectively as of the year end.
1: All right. That's, I think, another helpful area to look at. Um, You know, if things do come up during the year, you don't need to just slap an F on it and call it a failure. Um, You know, you have opportunities to remediate. Um, So say something does come up early in the year during testing. What would you recommend for maybe, you know, your best way uh, to track exceptions uh, throughout the year as they come up?
0: Yeah, that's a great segue into a wrapping up of this series. So really looking at that is you want to make sure that you are tracking all your exceptions that occur throughout the year. You want one main point of contact for tracking the exceptions as well as one place for tracking them. So typically what we recommend is that there is some type of control exception tracker that is put in place and that all items that have occurred throughout the year when testing are documented here. Even if it's able to document it as an isolated incident. Therefore, it just shows the full picture to the internal auditors as well as the external auditors what has occurred within the specific key controls throughout the year and it helps them provide an opinion at the end of the year. It will also help management categorize any potential exceptions that come up throughout the testing phase. Can you look at it and indicate that it's been an isolated incident that you've increased your samples and you know that it was only a few instances <clears throat> that it occurred or do you have a controlled deficiency at the end of the year or you may even look at to see that it maybe it's a significant deficiency or a material weakness. If any of these do occur, it's something that you should discuss frequently and consistently with your external auditors and also present them to the audit committee.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Kaylin, for giving such a detailed look behind the curtain. It's always so great to get your perspective on how to best approach the unique challenges Fidisha implementation poses. It looks like that's all the time we have for today's episode. I know we've provided a lot of information today on Fidisha internal control over financial reporting implementation using the COSO framework. If you're looking for assistance with your Fidisha implementation project or would like a second set of eyes as you refresh your existing documentation, Please reach out to Barry Dunn's financial institution team at info@barrydunn.com. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you, where we'll take a deep dive into the implications of Fidisha on your tax accrual process.